It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans. It's Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown. I am very excited to be here in the midst of the still the first round of the playoffs. Lots of intriguing storylines and a great show coming up for you. We're going to go over the Pacers and the Cavaliers series, which is all knotted up at 2-2. And I'm a little bit frustrated by how the Pacers are trying to attack the double-teaming of Oladipo. I did a video on that, and I suggested some ideas. They did better in Game 4, but... It's all about where, or it's all about who is in the right position to execute the actions that you're doing. So they kind of have the right idea of where the five players should be moving, but they haven't quite figured out who should be in which position. It's driving me a little bit crazy because, quite honestly, the Cavaliers are in a desperation mode with the way they're defending it because they can't stop Oladipo one on one. We're also going to have a great segment on the Wizards and the Raptors series and why it just simply can't grab my attention. For some reason, I watch the games and I kind of just get a wandering eye and can't quite keep focused on it. So we're going to go through that and figure out why that is, uh, because it is a good series. It's now 2-2, and it's uh, not your typical 1-8, because uh, you have uh, a, a... a Wizards team that really hasn't performed up to standards, and so they probably shouldn't really be an eighth seed. And uh, we'll have to find out if the Raptors are going to go through another one of their uh, swoons where they go back to just isolating or, or if they're going to continue with what they did recently this year, ball movement and good shots and, and, and sharing the ball. Uh, we dropped a video today about Playoff Rondo. Does Playoff Rondo really exist? Because if you all know, if you've been following the NBA for long enough, you hear about this thing where Rondo is suddenly you know, an all-world player when it comes to the playoffs. He kind of bides his time. But I don't know. There's a lot of players out there that kind of take their time and, and don't really play as hard as they can until the playoffs. So I'm not sure it's that different. Lots of stats in the video. So head over to the YouTube channel and check that out because it's a really good one. We've been cranking out the, uh, the videos on YouTube as well. So you have to head over there to the, the B-Ball Breakdown YouTube channel. We did one on the Bucks and how they were able to get right back into the Boston uh, series. And then also a special lineup the Sixers have been using of international players that have really been killing the, uh, the opponent. So uh, definitely head over there and check it out and subscribe while you're at it. And follow me at B-Ball Breakdown on Twitter. And stay tuned. After these messages, we'll come back with a great show for you. So no flipping. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. And we're back. It's Coach Nick here. This is the B-Ball Breakdown. Don't forget to follow me at B-Ball Breakdown. Check out my podcast, uh, which is the B-Ball Breakdown podcast, and also uh, the YouTube channel, B-Ball Breakdown. Lots of great stuff going on, and we are in the midst of the playoffs. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening with the Pacers and the Cavaliers. So, who better to bring on the show than a writer who covers the uh, Pacers, and his name is Dylan Hughes, and he writes for 8.9 seconds and Def Pan Hoops. So, thanks, Dylan, for coming on. All right, thanks for having me on. You got it. So, it's 2-2, um, but does it really feel like 2-2 to you from the Pacers' point of view? Well, it definitely feels close. Uh, I, I think the Pacers have really squandered some opportunities because really both the games they lost, they could have won, uh, especially the last one. They were down by 16, and they came back, and they just 
kept uh, kept making the same mistakes, and really they just gave it up at the end, letting Kyle Korver hit a couple threes, which he killed them in game two, and they lost for that same reason. And they just they just uh, were so bad offensively. The fact that they were even in the game was pretty crazy, and it's just really telling to how uh, how much worse this Cleveland team is than it was last year. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that they are desperate and and uh, to guard Oladipo. Like basically, if they try and guard him one on one, it seems like they spread it and he can get by whoever is guarding him, unless maybe it's LeBron. Um, so I, I I'll tell you this right now: I wasn't happy with the way they're trying to execute their uh, offense against this like random double, not random, but double teaming of Oladipo, especially out out top. Um, what are they saying and what is McMillan saying about all this kind of stuff and the players as far as like trying to figure out how to make this adjustment work? Yeah, I think it's been a tough adjustment because Oladipo really never saw that kind of coverage all year. It's basically just been teams trying to throw their best defender on him. And like you said, they would, Oladipo would just run around him. He's so quick and his dribble is so, he has such a tight handle. He just gets around these guys and goes straight to the rim and early on in the year, his pull-up shooting was so hot that he would just pull up over guys if they backed up off him and tried to slack off and kind of uh, close those those spaces up. And the, the Cavaliers have really just thrown everything they have at him. They've, they've had double teams a lot of times, and even lately they've thrown triple teams at him. And he's there's been some times where he's just split them, and, you know, he's like in game one he was just splitting the double teams. Kevin Love would come up, and he would just go right pat, go right through them. And he would drop some dimes. Like, there was a nice dime he had to Corey Joseph in the corner. But lately, he's just really been struggling. And they've been sometimes rotating a third guy over. And he's he's definitely, you can tell he's definitely never experienced this before. This is his first year as the primary creator for a team. So he's just really struggling, trying to figure out how to, like, break through that defense. And as we saw last game, he shot 5 for 20. So I think some of that fatigue and maybe some of the stress of just having to carry such a heavy load on offense has really been... Uh, putting really putting him in a bind. Sure, and I think, and then more to your point that he can play or shoot that poorly, and yet the, the Pacers are right there. Um, even though, yeah, I don't even know. I don't think their their offense isn't functioning fantastically, but it just shows you that the, the Cleveland defense really is a struggle, and that we've seen it all year long, and they haven't been able to really put together enough stops, which is why, I, I, yeah, no Cleveland Cavalier lead is safe out there. Um, I, I thought, you know, what's one thing that's really changed my mind uh, uh, about a player's game based on the series is Lance Stevenson, a guy who I thought, even when he played well uh, several seasons ago for Indiana, I never really felt like he was great. He just sort of was still out of control. He had crazy footwork off balance and this uh, weird. But now it seems like it's a different player. Um, what do you think about Lance's production so far in, in these four games? Well, Lance, you know, Lance is up and down. There are a lot of, as a from a Pacers perspective, there's a lot of moments where you just love him, and there's a lot of moments where you hate him because there are times where, like Oladipo, he'll just he'll just cut through the lane and get easy buckets of the rim, and he's just so passionate, and he really takes the challenge on defense. Like he'll he'll body up LeBron, like he won't back down, and it's really fun to watch that. But at the same time. As we saw last game, sometimes he just gets too into it and he'll get technical fouls mm-hmm. and he just charges over guys. When he's trying to get to the rim, he'll push off. So the Lance Stevenson experience is definitely uh, an up and down one. And I, I do think the Pacers need the edge he brings just because they really need that guy that can come in and just and just really uh, get in LeBron's head. And as we've seen, LeBron's 
pushed him. Lance definitely gets in his head, whether he says it or will admit it or not. Uh, but so you take the good with the bad, basically, with Lance Stevenson. For sure. And I, I do still feel like they're getting a lot more of the good. He's driving to the basket well, and he's, he's finishing. His numbers aren't fantastic, but they're good. They're, you know, 10 points a game uh, coming off the bench in 21 minutes a game. So he's doing nicely for them and providing what they need. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's uh, well on their way to what they, what they can do to win this series. So, uh, sports fans, we have Dylan Hughes with us right now to talk for, about the Indiana Pacers, and he writes for 8.9 seconds and Def Pen Hoops. So, Dylan, let's talk a little bit about Boyan Bogdanovich because I don't think a lot of people understood just how good he is and how good he's been uh, in, the, in, this, in this playoff series. Yeah, Boyan has been fun all year. Uh, I, early on, you know, he was uh, he's starting, and a lot of people wanted Glenn Robinson III to start to begin the year, but he got hurt in preseason. So Boyan really uh, got that role, and he was good, and then, there was a Boston game. Some of you guys might remember he, uh, the Pacers were up and they were probably going to win. He just needed to hold on to the ball and get fouled. And he actually threw it away. And Boston got, I think it was Terry Rozier got it. And he got like a layup and a foul and Boston ended up winning that game. So it felt like with Pacers fans, the, they were trying to, Bojan had to kind of earn the trust back. And lately he's just been on fire. Like he's had games and we've seen it in the past with him with the Nets in Washington. He just, there are some games where he'll just go off and hit seven threes like he did in game three. And he's, he's, I mean, he really knows how to play. Like, he's not just a shooter. Uh, he's really smart in transition. He's, you know, I got that Euro step, of course, being from Croatia. And even on defense, he's, he's done a, a decent job on LeBron. He can only do so much uh, with his size and athleticism. But uh, when LeBron posts him up, Bojan gives him, he gives him some trouble. Yeah, I mean, I liked when I watch him uh, front LeBron, and then the Cleveland Cavaliers defense really—they're um, just—it's just a mess on the other side. Like, I think that they have to be thinking they're lucky stars. It's two-two, and I know the Cavaliers fans can be mad at me for for sort of poo-pooing what's gone on so far, but. It, I'm, I think I want to do a breakdown on their offense because it really is that disorganized in my mind because, in theory, you, you front LeBron, it should be a quick uh, pass to the high post and a high-low, boom, he can get a layup. And yet they don't even have that in their arsenal at this point. So uh, it's been really great to watch him, and especially to announce his presence. I don't think every, very many people were really familiar with uh, who he was or, or how good he is. Certainly without him, uh, they wouldn't be in this position. So what do you think going forward as we start to uh, move toward the end of our, our discussion here? is as far as, you know, what's going on this series. we got Game 5 coming up. Who's going to win this whole series? Well, I really think the Pacers really needed to win Game 4 to have a really good chance because they're just, with, with LeBron on the other side, they, the Pacers need a lot of momentum. It's just really hard to doubt LeBron, and now it's a best of three, basically. Cleveland has two at home, and Oladipo has been better on the road this season, so there's some reason to believe that he's going to come out uh, tomorrow night and do a lot better than he uh, did last game. But it's it's just going to be tough. The Pacers need to make some changes because, as we saw last game, their offense really breaks down when Oladipo's not hitting shots, and it turns into a lot of iso ball. And the thing they really found success in was going down low. Thaddeus Young had 16 rebounds and some big shots in the fourth quarter. And then Demonte Sabonis was a big part in that comeback, too. He... Cleveland can't really guard him, and it's a different dynamic than with Miles Turner because Turner's more of a spacer. He's not really as strong as those other two guys, uh, Young and Sabonis, to go down low and really uh, body them up, body Cleveland up. 
So Sabonis came in and he really scored down low. So I, I think that maybe McMillan needs to look at Sabonis more uh, going forward and see if he can really put some damage in because Cleveland showed that they can't really defend that. And they've, they've done a better job defending the perimeter, I would say, than down low. So I still I picked Cleveland in seven in the beginning, and I think I'm still going to stick with that. But if the Pacers win game five in Cleveland, it it may be it may be tough for Cleveland to go back to Indiana and win game six. I agree. I think they might have missed their best chance in game four, but you never know how this defense is on Cleveland. They'll let you in and let you stay around. So we'll have to see some heroics can happen in game five. Dylan, thanks for bringing this down for us. I really appreciate it. You can follow him at Dylan Hughes. And uh, don't go anywhere, sports fans. We were going to be right back on the B-Ball Breakdown after these messages. If you're listening to this and feeling a bit old and out of touch with this young generation of ball players, you might be in the age range where we commonly see sexual performance issues. Did you know that 40% of men by age 40 struggle from those dreaded two letters, E-D? You know what they stand for. And now, there's real science to turn your fortune completely around. 4hims.com is your solution. A complete one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. They have well-known generic equivalents to the name brand prescriptions to help you combat ED. In fact, one pill, starting with a V, just came off its patent recently. A real game changer. So avoid those embarrassing doctor's visits with all the invasive questions. Instead, get erectile without the dysfunction. Go to 4hims.com slash coachnicked and get hymns for a month for just $5 while supplies last. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. So don't wait. That's 4hims, F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash coachnicked. See website for full details and get back on the path to sexual performance. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. Hey, sports fans. Welcome back. This is the B-Ball Breakdown. As always, I am Coach Nick. You can always find us every Tuesday, 5 p.m. Pacific time on SB Nation Radio and across all the other FM stations that you might be tuning into across the country. I'm really excited to bring on our next guest because it's a subject we haven't talked much about yet on the uh, YouTube channel, and that would be the series between the Wizards um, and the. Um, oh my goodness! My this is how this is how crazy this is how uh, crazy it's been. The Raptors. I haven't had a hard time watching this, this series, and I'm kind of figuring out having trouble figuring out why I'm having trouble. So I needed to bring on the next guest to help me figure out what's happening in this series and why I should get more into it. So without further ado, let's bring on senior writer from, with Yahoo Sports NBA, Michael Lee, and also parenthetically a friend of the breakdown, Michael Lee. Michael, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, well, you, explain to me why I can't even remember who these two teams are in this series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Washington Wizards um, and the Toronto Raptors. The Wizards are the eighth seed and the Raptors are the one seed. Mm-hmm. That helps. Does that help? <laughs> okay. Right. Uh, the Wizards. The Wizards are a team that grossly underachieved this year. Even though they missed John Wall for half the season, even when he was around, they wound up losing some really clunkers uh, to like Phoenix and Dallas and Brooklyn twice and Atlanta. You name the bad squad, they beat the Wizards this year, and uh, so they they had a really up and down season. So they earned the eighth seed. 
but they had the talent, I think, coming in that everyone expected that this bunch could kind of move up into the Eastern Com- Conference's upper echelon. Of course, they didn't do that. They, they, they believed their own height and played like a team that didn't have to uh, have to be serious or be focused uh, to win games. They thought their talent would, would prevail, and they paid a price for it. And then you got the Toronto Raptors, a team that took the opposite approach, um, that people thought they could be a part of the upper echelon, and they went overachieved in a year everybody thought that Cleveland and Boston would probably take, you know, the number one uh, seed in the East. They emerged as the best team by changing their philosophy, by changing their scheme, by becoming a more um, uh, ball movement, uh, more three-point shooting, a more modern offense that really challenged DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. They embraced it, and they were rewarded for it by becoming the best team in the East, and they're a favorite coming in. Um but through four games, the Wizards have matched them at two apiece, and now we're seeing that the talent, there really isn't much separation in talent. And if both teams are focused, we could have a pretty incredible series. Yeah, I mean, we certainly have a terrific backcourt matchup. You have Lowry and DeRozan on one side, and then you have Beal and, uh, and um, John Wall on the other, uh, which has been very intriguing to me. But, you know, the one thing that someone pointed out to me this morning, which I'm going to think I'm going to do a video on, is the bench of the Raptors for the whole year uh, had been dominating. In fact, you know, one of the best five-man lineups in terms of net rating out there, uh, really propelling them, even though they did get, you know, good play from, from their starters. Uh, that apparently is not the case anymore in this series. In fact, the, it's the Wizards bench that's been doing a lot of damage. Do you have you seen that with your with your eyes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that one of the reasons why uh, Toronto's bench has been not as good is because Fred Van Vliet has been out with a shoulder injury. He tried to play game two, but he just wasn't himself, and he's missed the uh, past two games. So he's missed three to four games in this series. And game one, it didn't matter because DeLon Wright had a phenomenal game, and he, he just, you know, took up those minutes and, and gave them that kind of the same production as they would have got from Van Vliet and himself combined almost. Um, but without Van Vliet, it sort of puts um, Dwayne Casey in a bit of a, a, a tough spot because he would rely on him, his, his defense, the fact that he could, he could guard perimeter guys, he's a tenacious defender, and he also could, you know, spread the floor and knock down that corner three. So not having him, having his presence has sort of taken a huge piece of what made the Raptors successful. So, yeah, the bench hasn't been what it was, um, but I think a lot of that is because their rotations are a bit off. Interesting. You know, I really like Fred Van Vliet, and maybe one day he'll follow me. He likes the tweets that I post of his when I video his tweet, uh, a play of his. Uh, he doesn't actually follow me, though. But nonetheless, love the way he plays. I love those kind of guards, kind of unheralded, uh, lots of years in college, very polished, very under control. Um, you know, his numbers are modest. When you look at his regular season numbers, you know, he plays 20 minutes a game, almost nine points, shoots very well from three in the lower-ish volume. So it's kind of it's amazing to me that like you know you could that that's the guy. I mean, what are the other intangibles besides you know the corner shooting and and uh, and that kind of stuff? Do you think that really puts him over the edge? It's just that toughness. It's just uh, that competitiveness and that fight. I mean, he's he had a pretty rough existence, you know, coming up uh, and just in the in uh, Illinois and uh, and he he made a way for himself. And I think that just having that element, you know, when you, when you get into the playoffs. The more feisty players you have, the more guys with an edge that you have, the better you're going to be. And I think that one of the problems that 
they, they the Raptors have had in the last two games in particular is that you know they the guys were afraid to shoot. Guys were kind of taking up you know passing up open looks and trying to move the ball uh, out of fear, and that, that that sort of happens sometimes when you're on the road. Role players sort of take a step back when you're at home. You feel the comforts of your fan base behind you, pushing you. Um, you know, when you're on the road, you hear those boos. You know, it's tougher on role players, and it puts a lot of pressure on DeMar, and uh, especially DeMar, to sort of feel like he has to be the hero and, and bail them out. And um, and I think that that's sort of what the Wizards did. They, they put DeMar in a situation where he has to uh, feel like he has to be the hero and revert to what caused the uh, – <laughs> the Raptors to have a whole culture reset to begin with. You know, with about five minutes ago in game four, Beal was having a monster game and had foul trouble as well. And they caught him for, you know, a, a sixth foul, which would have put, a, you know, the Wizards in a lot of peril because that could have been a 3-1 deficit they would have had. Uh, first of all, I'm kind of curious. I don't know if everyone all saw it, but it was, uh, it was how controversial of, the, of a call was that to you? Uh, it was extremely controversial. Uh, fans in the arena were going crazy. Obviously, uh, Bradley Beal was literally hopping mad, jumping up and down and, and screaming and cursing and untucking his jersey. And uh, and also on Twitter, you know, I, I made a comment that uh, on Twitter that I thought that Brad doesn't need to be anywhere near contact with five fouls. And even though DeMar ran into him, I felt like Brad should have ran away. And people were attacking me. And I, I was like, well, you know, you can't have close calls. When you have five fouls, any contact can go against you. And that was one of the things I appreciate Brad for being aggressive and being assertive and not, not you know, playing a pass because he said pass gets you beat. But uh, but sometimes you got to be smart. And if, if a guy is kind of out of control going for a loose ball, sometimes you got to just slide out of the way, let him have it, and then, and then, then defend, you know, defend straight up. But uh, he stuck his leg out the slightest amount, and I don't think people really saw that. And that, that, that's, that's where the rest I had to call it. And I think in some ways it worked out in the Wizards' favor because I think the rest felt horrible that they found out Bradley Beal on a play, uh, a pretty, on a borderline play. Um, but <laughs> for, for one thing, they also didn't call as many fouls <laughs> against the Wizards <laughs> the rest of the game. And the Wizards are a team that when the things are most chaotic and when they're facing the most adversity and they're cornered the most, that's when they respond. You know, this year they were, they had such an uneven year and then John Wall goes down with knee surgery. And then all of a sudden they start to figure out, Hey, we can win games by sharing the ball and playing together. How about that? Ooh. And they did it for a while. And, um, and they, but they, they found a way. And, you know, so when Brad went down, I sort of felt like this is sort of what the wizards do, you know, when it's, when it looks like it's the bleakest, that's when they, they step up, and John Wall came through and, and carried them with a stellar performance, um, you know, counting for all the baskets, either through scoring, through assists, the rest of the way, and um, or just through, through baskets, not, 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 not free throws, of course, but he, he came through and delivered. So, And I think the Raptors, they let their guard down a bit. They're like, oh, their best score is out. We got this, and it, it wasn't the case. Yeah, definitely a natural letdown. And I think what's interesting is what you described as far as uh, the ball movement and sharing that the Wizards kind of mastered when Wall was out. It sounds like the opposite happened uh, with the Raptors down the stretch, like you mentioned with DeMar DeRozan. They kind of reverted. 
and I think that's probably pretty natural under the pressure of the of that you know of that game where you might kind of you know go back to what you might have done in the past. Are you is Dwayne Casey concerned, uh, coach the Raptors and or the players that uh, that was that a one time thing, or are they going to be able to? Uh, uh, are they going to revert again back to ISO ball and 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 you know ultimately like maybe losing ball uh, ultimately? Yeah, well, I think if you're Dwayne Casey, that sort of played into your hands. What happened? You know, if you trust what we do, if you trust what we've been doing all year, we're going to find success. But if you go back to what we've been doing, we'll be right back in that same situation and lose. So I think in some ways you don't want to lose a game, and especially in the playoffs. But I think it, that could be the, the game that serves as a reminder for this series and if they advance and go to the next one. Hey, what we were doing, is, it was not working. We, we, we had a feeling for that. But if, if we – play with each other and we share the ball and we take our open looks and we have trust in the system, we can go much further. And I think it sort of, it, it sort of gives him, you know, an easy talking point for these guys that they can, they can buy in even more because they, they learn a lesson that, you know, hero ball, there's a ceiling to that. We've already reached that ceiling. If we want to go further, we got to try something new and stick to it. And I, I think it actually may have worked out to their benefit. Uh, I, we'll find out in Game Five. Cannot yeah, wait we'll to see. Yeah, we'll find out. That's right. We cannot wait to see what's going to happen. So uh, that was Mrs. M- uh, Michael Lee at, at Mr. Michael Lee on Twitter, and he is the an NBA senior writer for Yahoo Sports NBA. So make sure you give him a follow because he's got great information and insights all day, every day. He's a friend of the breakdown. You've been uh, with us for a, a while now. Great, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on, and please come back again. Hey, and thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. You got it. And don't go anywhere, sports fans. We'll be right back with our next segment on the B-Ball Breakdown. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. And we are back for our signature segment. And this one's going to be a doozy because we're going to talk a little bit about, or a lot about, the Jazz versus the Thunder series. It's been a little bit shocking that it's now 3-1 Jazz. Uh, although, if you watch some of these games, it's certainly, you know, you can kind of see what's going on and why. But what we really want to find out is what's going on behind the scenes. What are the players saying? What are the coaches saying? What's going to happen as we move forward? Is this going to be over soon or not? So there wasn't anybody better that I could think of to talk about this than Eric Horn, friend of the breakdown. And he's a Thunder beat writer for the Oklahoman and NewsOK.com. And if there is something that no one's reported yet, Eric will definitely have it. So I'm looking for some breaking news, Eric. What's going on, my man? <laughs> <laughs> the breaking news. Oh, man. I don't know if you guys know this, but Russell Westbrook, um, he's not great at the defense. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's breaking news to basketball breakdown necessarily, but um, I'm going to be frank. I don't really have anything fresh for you here in terms of breaking news. Uh, this team – has its warts. It has shown it all season. It has been on full display. Um, I, I don't necessarily. I, I guess I could go. I, all right. Let me let me, let me drop this one on you. I, uh, I'll, I'll I'll give you a little. I'll give you a little a little a little smidge of a nugget here. Okay. Um, I don't think that some of these guys are bought in from what I 
from what I understand, as much as they would lead it on to be, uh, as, as much as it, as it would be indicated through what they've said. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I, I don't think that, uh, and, and I will exclude Russell Westbrook from that, but I don't think that some of these guys are as bought in as it would be led to believe. Okay. Um, but that being said, they've still had moments where they played well together this season. Um, I think that they get along as a unit. The team, I think the team gets along. I think their chemistry off the court is fine. I don't think that they necessarily dislike each other or anything like that. I just think you've got a bunch of pieces together that don't really fit. It's been a struggle to fit all season. And, I mean, compound that with their defense pretty much falling off of a cliff. Frankly, it started falling off even before Andre Robertson got hurt. Hasn't been a good matchup for them, you know? Uh, the Jazz are a very well-coached team. Uh, they don't have a star system. They could have a number of guys that could hurt you on any given night. And we didn't get a real indication of what this was going to be like based on the regular season matchup because Rudy Gobert didn't play a lot in the regular season matchup. So you're seeing the full effect of this. You're seeing a season's worth of frustration from the Thunder coming out, and you're seeing the Jazz really molding into this uh, this team that, that that's going to have some potential for years to come. Yeah, it's funny because we're kind of seeing it on the Eastern Conference too where like the Wizards really shouldn't be an eighth seed and so now the Raptors have to deal with that in a way that they probably shouldn't have, have in the first round. And I think it's the same thing here in a way where the Jazz, you know, uh, without Gobert are, are not the same team and, and probably, you know, wouldn't have had the same seating either. You mentioned at the beginning that Russell Westbrook struggles with defense. And I've certainly, you know, argued that uh, to some extent. Uh, you know, what's funny is that as I'm watching these games, I don't know, like for some reason, that's not like grabbing me. So what are you seeing about his defense or maybe even specifically about the others that's so, that's so troubling where the Jazz are now nailing? They had 115 points uh, in Game 3 and then 113 in Game 4. We're, just, we're up by you know 20 uh, early enough where it was kind of a blowout. So what are you seeing from him and from the, the team specifically that's, that's really hurting them? Well, it, it, it's a couple things. Um, with Westbrook specifically, I, I tend to agree with you. I didn't think he was particularly bad through the first three games. I think he was following game plan. And the mm-hmm. game plan was to let Ricky Rubio take all those jump shots he wants. It worked in the first game. Ricky Rubio was terrible in the first game. I think he was – I think I counted. I think he was like 07 from 17 feet or deeper. <laughs> um, he was awful. And, look, Russell Westbrook doesn't really contest jump shots to begin with. If you look up the metrics, mm-hmm. he, he's one of the guys in the bottom of the league in terms of contesting jump shots because he's usually looking to get a rebound. Um, and he just sags off the defender's whether it's Ricky Rubio or Damian Lillard. That's just kind of what he does, and that's what the Thunder lives with. But, but look, the game plan was pretty clear. They were going to let Ricky Rubio shoot off the dribble. Um, I think limited catch-and-shoot opportunities, but like those those present themselves because the Jazz just runs really good offense. Um, but Rubio shot well on catch-and-shoots going into the last game. Uh, I think he was like 41% from three. And he had that one game where, in game three, he was just 5-of-5 five five from mid-range, which is just, that's just a Ricky Rubio anomaly. <laughs> like, right. like, Russell Westbrook and Billy Donovan, I think if you told them that Ricky Rubio was going to go 5-of-5 five five from the mid-range, shooting 
off-balance mid-range jumpers, I think they would have been like, well, you know what? If he's taking those and making those, then, then tip your hat to him. Right. Um, the problem, really, with Rubio is more so his playmaking than his scoring. Um, and that's what got the Thunder in trouble last game. You know, the foul trouble, it disabled Russell Westbrook from being as aggressive as he was previously in the game. You know, he, he kept them to a low number in terms of scoring. I think he was 4-12 from the field, but once he picked up that third foul, which he kind of unnecessarily came over and swiped on a mid-range jump shot from Rubio when Alex Sabrina's kind of had it covered, you know, Rubio attacks him. He can't get in front of him because he's got that three. He's got those three fouls. Paul George has to slide over from the corner, and you know what that means, Joe Ingle three. So, right. like, Ricky Rubio, once he gets going downhill, he's one of the best guys in the league in finding guys. He's a great facilitator. Um, that's never been a question about Ricky Rubio. He's a tremendous facilitator, great passer. So, once Westbrook was over, you know, he was over-aggressive with the fouls early, and that affected the way that he could defend Ricky Rubio in the last two minutes of the second quarter. And that's when the Jazz blew the game open. Um, you know, Ingles hits that first three. Westbrook picks up a, uh, an offensive foul in the next possession, which, you know, dubious or not, it's, it, it's his fourth foul. He's got to come out then. And then they're going downhill at Raymond Felton from that point on. Mm-hmm. Um, Raymond Felton, you know, limited defender. Uh, you can fault Russell Westbrook. And, I mean, you can – you can criticize him as much as you want, but Russell Westbrook is capable of staying with Ricky Rubio when he puts his mind to it. Um, that was the big problem in game four to me. The foul trouble uh, got the got got the Jazz going downhill, opened up those three Ingles threes toward the end of the second quarter. That, that just broke the Thunder's back. Yeah. You know, and then, um, well, one, one thing about that, I didn't do it uh, publicly yeah, but, on a tweet, but I have some DMs where once the game started and you saw that Russell Westbrook clearly, you know, he had already kind of called out that he was going to stop Rubio, which was never really that, – that was sort of the problem. This is not about Russ versus Rubio. That's not the matchup yeah. that's going to win them. But it, you yeah. saw that he was, going to, he was going to press Ricky Rubio full court. And I said he is going to get into foul trouble. And I was surprised that it took him as long as it did. He got the second foul with five minutes left in the first quarter when I thought for sure because Rubio knows how to get into the body and knows how to create contact. And I thought – I thought that was the problem. Russ was playing off balance and in way too, like I guess, intensely, yeah. and it played right into the Jazz hands. It was weird that no one would have said, "Hey, you know, back off a little bit after the first one." At yeah. Least. yeah, and and I think that there was this conception on Twitter um, over the first couple of games that since Ricky Rubio was hitting these shots, that Russell Westbrook needs to be playing closer up on him. Uh, I don't know if y'all been watching Russell Westbrook all year. When he plays up close on a guy, the guy's usually going to blow by him because Russell Westbrook's not about keeping guys in front of him. He's about um, the guy going by him and reaching in behind to get a steal. Sometimes it works. A lot of times it works. Um, A lot of times it doesn't work. So I don't think you want to play Ricky Rubio up close. I mean, even though uh, you don't want to encourage Ricky Rubio to drive. Like, you want to sag off. You want you want mm-hmm. to give him that space and then invite him to take that jump shot. That's what Westbrook was doing. Um, that was the thing that worked in game one. Ricky Rubio just flat out missed, and he took some bad shots off the dribble. Ricky Rubio made bad decisions. The Jazz credits them. Um, they, they did a better job of coming back and making better decisions in games two through four. But, look, you don't want Russell Westbrook tight on Ricky Rubio because Russell Westbrook's not going to keep anybody in front of him. 
Great points. Great points all. And we've seen what the results of that are. Um, what do you think, though? I mean, is this series over? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess that was a yes or no question. The, the Thunder can no. Um, the Thunder can get it back to, to Utah, I think. I just don't really have any confidence in them winning in Utah. They well, you, don't. You were there, I think, for Game Four, right? Oh yeah, I was there for three and four. So, is that as loud as it seemed on TV? Oh yeah, fans were rabid. Uh, the Thunder really didn't look like they had much composure once the Jazz started getting out in transition, whipping the ball around. Uh, you just sensed that it was about to break for them. Every time the Jazz got a corner three, it seemed like it was the end of the world. <laughs> and if the Thunder can't keep them from getting those corner threes, if Paul George can't stay committed to basically just sagging, I mean, not sagging, but blanketing Joe Ingles, mm-hmm. which he did well the first couple games of the yeah. series. Absolutely. He needs to continue to do that. You know, trust his defense to be able to hold down the pick and roll by themselves and not help and not help off of Ingles. I think they can win game uh, five. And, okay. But I just think it's going to be really difficult for them to go to Utah and win. I just saw no indication that the Thunder was going to win in those two games in Utah. Even when they got ahead, it didn't feel like they were going to run away with it. Uh, they were only just a few plays away a couple of three-pointers from the thing just tilting in Utah's favor. Did Paul George say anything about how um, Joe Ingles was either trying or getting into his head and that becoming an issue? Was there any uh, questions about that after the game? I don't know if it was like necessarily about him getting into his head, but over the past few days, you know, Billy Donovan's mentioned kind of the, the miscommunication or the misread that, that Paul George was making there. Uh, he, he was helping when he wasn't supposed to, or he was helping onto the wrong guy. And I just don't see how you can have that kind of disconnect between games two and three. When the directive in games one and two clearly was for Paul George to just stay home on him and just not even allow him to get the ball. And he did a pretty good job of it. Joe Ingles is a non-factor mm-hmm. for the first couple of games. But I think what was interesting in game three was instead of Ingles kind of planting himself in the corner for an entire possession, he would slowly kind of make himself, he would, he would slowly like get up above the break. And I think that that's when George or whoever was on the backside would kind of lose track of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ingles just started changing his movement subtly on those, uh, in, in those half-court sets. He would move up to above the break, and I think those guys would look back and then they'd be like, oh, crap. <laughs> because Ingles did a couple of those above the break where you thought he was going to be in the corner and they would have time to close out on him. But uh, he kind of changed up his movement there. And that's another good um, adjustment by Jeff. Yeah. And, and they were ruthless. I mean, he was shooting that before he caught it, uh, basically, on those some of those. Uh, and, and just nailing him after the, after the beginning where he, I guess he needed to get warmed up a little bit. Um, so a fascinating series and really I, I, certainly surprising. I think we thought this would maybe go seven. Uh, I kind of had the Jazz just because their defense was so good and they were playing so well with Rudy Gobert. So uh, we'll have to find out how this plays out. But don't forget, sports fans, Eric Horn is the guy that you need to follow over on Twitter to uh, get all of your news and read him over at the Oklahoman and the NewsOK.com. So follow him at Eric Horn. That's an Eric with a K. Eric Horn, OK. And thanks for coming on the show, Eric. I really appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Anytime.
You got it. And don't go anywhere, sports fans. We will be right back after these messages. It's the B-Ball Breakdown with Coach Nick on SB Nation Radio. Coming to you live from the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Coach Nick. So there you have it, sports fans. An action-packed show for you. Lots of guests that came on and really broke down what was going on in great detail in three crucial series that we've been keeping our eye on. So I think I'm now fully interested after Michael Lee's uh, interview with me about the Wizards and the Raptors, and I got my head around what's going on a little bit more carefully. So I will do a video, I promise. So stay tuned. Raptors fans have been complaining that I haven't done a video yet. It's just, uh, I don't know, I can't quite get into it, but I'm worried that if I do a another game breakdown of a Raptors loss, then the Toronto fans are going to come at me big time, you know, wondering why I didn't do it when they won, but I am only one man. The Thunder and the Jazz are also another really intriguing series, and the Jazz are simply playing better as a team. I think that Russell Westbrook kind of got on the right, on the wrong track when he was trying to make it almost like a one-on-one versus him and Ricky Rubio. And let's face it, the Jazz are just a better team. They're playing like a team a lot better than the Thunder's individual talent and, and parts. And it's uh, it's really amazing to see that game in Utah, the game four. You can when you can feel the crowd through the through the TV. That's like that's when you know that there's a real crazy atmosphere. I mean, Mitt Romney was trying to you know call out Russell Westbrook and his four fouls. The game had everything. Um, a huge lead for the Jazz, who like kind of were screwing around a little bit, but they ended up holding on. So we'll have to get a breakdown of that done pretty soon. I'm anxious to see a little bit more of like what Russ's role is going to be and how it's played out when you look really carefully at all the the footage. And then we had the Pacers and the Cavaliers, another great uh, analysis that we had with Dylan Hughes. And uh, again, I, it's possible that the Pacers have given uh, give, had their last good chance in Game Four, and because they blew a couple spots there, you can't do that with LeBron. Once he gets a, a little opening, he tends to open that door and then slam it in your face. So we'll have to see. I love the underdog though, and it's always fun when you you know think about the Pacers. Uh, can they possibly keep surprising people as they have all year long? Can Victor Oladipo get on track and actually shoot well? Um, and maybe it doesn't even matter because he hasn't shot well, and they've been right there. On a lot of those games, they can just figure out how to rotate better uh, out of the out of their offense when they double team Oladipo. Uh, they should get a lot more easier baskets, and then they just have to hit them. So thanks for joining us. As always, I'm Coach Nick. This is the B Ball Breakdown. I am here every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So make sure you find me over here on the SB Nation Radio streaming or whatever local channel you might be listening to this on. So don't forget, you can follow me over at B-Ball Breakdown, and I always respond to everybody because, don't forget, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? 